Welcome to the Inspiring Futures podcast. Um, my my guest today is Jay Goodman. Uh, Jay has his own company now, uh, Super Connector, after years uh, in various agencies. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit. So welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. We've been planning it, planning it for a few weeks and uh, finally come to fruition. So what we, uh, one of the things we usually do is just... Um, so people can orient themselves with with your career path. Just uh, could you give us a little uh, accelerated version of uh, of your career journey to date? Sure. Recognizing most of your listeners probably have Google and LinkedIn, I'll try not to simply have it be a repeat of that. Um, but but I'll walk you through it chronologically because I think it will bring us back to how I landed at the intersection of advertising and entertainment. Um, which is as a as a kid beyond the typical uh, or atypical jobs like picking tobacco and uh, and scooping ice cream. Uh, as a teenager, I worked for a really well known rock and roll concert promoter in the San Francisco Bay Area um, named Bill Graham. Um, but my job, among many others, being lowest person on the totem pole, was to wash the Pontiacs as Pontiac and General Motors were sponsors of this otherwise like really cool rock and roll venue. So I, I think it got seared into me very early that that brands could be a part of popular culture and could play a role in that. Um, and a similar thing followed my passion for skiing into uh, working for a ski movie company called Warren Miller Films. And same thing with Warren, we'd spend about a million bucks making a movie every year, get about a million dollars in brand partnerships, and then tour the movie like a rock tour. And that's where all the upside was. So it doesn't really matter how. From there, I stumbled into advertising, found myself at Widen in the 90s, which Janet Champ called the Paris in the 20s of advertising. Um, again, I, you know, I was low person. Uh, I was writing nerdy Microsoft ads while everybody's favorite Nike ads were being made. But, you know, I'd like to think some of it rubbed off. And again, full circle, you find me 20 years later, you know, really spearheading the creation of Nike's entertainment division. Um, from there, I, I got pretty lucky, as did a lot of us coming out of Widen in the 90s. Um, I, I found myself in a very big job at a very big agency, kind of peak Hal Reine in San Francisco, multi-billion dollar agency, Sprint alone, uh, the, the uh, wireless phone company was a billion dollar domestic advertiser. Uh, I think they were the largest buyer of primetime television at, at the time. And while making all these commercials, TiVo came along and I also fast forwarded one of my own commercials and beyond the professional existential crisis that created, um, I really had this thought that, well, if we have a billion dollar domestic advertiser on our roster, we must have great leverage with the television networks. And why can't we partner with the entertainment in, in more innovative and creative ways? And why can't brands be a part of creating that entertainment? It turned out there were a bunch of reasons why ad agency and media agency business dynamics were not a great place to do that and some legal reasons. So I found myself in Hollywood pitching the team at CAA who had represented me when I sold a television show to Fox um, on this business I was going to create where I was going to help the world's leading brands create entertainment uh, by using my chops from advertising and the little I'd learned about entertainment. Um, and, and it was Brian Lord there, who's still the chairman uh, and CEO today, uh, who said, that's a great idea, but don't go start that company, do it here, which uh, led to over a dozen years of me leading a group there called CAA Marketing, which is where most of my career accolades got stacked up and most of my favorite work got stacked up and where I really cemented my belief that the world's best marketers create content and experiences that attract and engage an audience rather than interrupt it. Spun that out to become observatory because CAA was awesome uh, and, and got very big and was in a bunch of businesses. And I really felt um, that uh, the CAA marketing group needed to live separately. Got some money from Stagwell. Um, observatory had an epic run uh, with Fast Companies, world's most innovative companies, three years in a row, 20 through 2022. And then again, got that same itch that I got or same sense that I got while sitting at Hal Reine in San Francisco, which is that the business model needed to shift again, which is what led me to sell the rest of Observatory and create Super Connector Studios. 
I'm going to pause there because you said accelerated and I just gave, I, I did, did just give you like 25 years and six or seven minutes, whatever that was. So I'm going to That was really impressive. That was really impressive. You, you know how to make a pitch. That's for sure. Huh. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to start with a pretty random, weird question. Did you grow up? Did you grow up in San Francisco? Or did you grew up some other part of the country. You found uh, I'm from Elmhurst, Queens, New York, originally. So you're a New Yorker, really? Yeah, I spent a little time in Connecticut, and then at age um, eleven. Uh, long story, the short version is, I guess my dad won a custody battle. <laughs> yeah, I found myself in Silicon Valley in the '80s, which was again an awesome place and time. I really being in in Queens in the in the late right. '70s, and then being in Silicon Valley through the '80s. Um, I really got a great sense of the just the the different things that make America a really special. Yeah, really interesting. And but then you went, you know, there's the whole North California, North North California, South California divide, you know, and there's sort of like the guys in Silicon Valley don't get the guys down in Hollywood and vice versa. Um, so what was the biggest challenge when you when you when you when you moved? And you'd been in you'd been in Poland as well. Exactly. Uh, so you've been in sort of a different sort of geography, and then you get into Hollywood. What What's the biggest learning? It's a great question. I don't know that I've been asked it before, but I have thought about it before, um, which is that Silicon Valley and Hollywood actually for a really long time operated on pretty much the same business model while having kind of this misunderstanding of each other and certainly a NorCal SoCal rivalry you know, uh, more, I think, uh, more in kids and culture than yep. necessarily business. Um, but th there are really only a handful of places on planet Earth where you can show up with nothing more than an idea, regardless of your background, you know, uh, recognizing that a lot of things help, like background and education and all that. Sure. But, but truly, there are very few places in the world where you can show up with nothing more than a great idea and, a, and the willingness to work really, really hard where there's infrastructure in order to make that idea into a reality. And in Silicon Valley, that might be a pitch for a business, initially semiconductors, and then obviously software and you know, insert the internet and everything Silicon Valley has become. But the same is true for Hollywood. You got a screenwriter who shows up in town and they're working in Starbucks one week and you know you have to get really lucky in both places and having gone to Harvard is helpful in both places, don't get me wrong. Um, but even if you didn't uh, and you have a great idea, um, you can get it made. So with all that kind of um, NorCal versus SoCal, you know, you're pitching to venture capitalists in Silicon Valley who are not that different than the studio system themselves. And so in Hollywood, you're pitching, you know, to an agent to represent you, or then you and your agent are pitching to a studio or to a financier. And ultimately somebody is going to put a tremendous amount of capital behind nothing more than an idea, and then put that idea out into the world. And the idea is going to succeed or fail very quickly in most cases. Hollywood a little bit more quickly um, than Silicon Valley necessarily, but you've only got so much runway with your investment in Silicon Valley, and you've only got opening night or your premiere on television um, in Hollywood. So I've always really seen them as these very parallel places. And I felt like growing up around a bunch of Silicon Valley engineers, um, super nerds, you know, poor kids from the Midwest in a lot of cases who were good at, good at math and Silicon Valley 1.0 was not that different than watching people come to Hollywood and, and make their attempt to make it. You said one thing you skipped over really fast, and I but I caught it because I, I I didn't know this about you. Um, well, I didn't know a lot of things about you, but I didn't know this specific fact, which was you said CA represented you when you were pitching a show to Fox. Or you, did you sell a show to Fox? How, what's the story about that? We, we did. Uh, so um, I, I created an idea with a, with a few other people, um, including a guy named Alan Gross, who was one of the ESPN clients at, at Wyden. Um, we had a show called Fandomonium, the search for America's ultimate sports fan. Uh, it was a hell of a pitch. The other partners on it were guys named Vince Mullen and Lance Weiler, who are two just remarkable creative minds. And... Uh, 
Alan knew someone at CAA, Jeff Jacobs, from the ESPN years. Jake is still there. He runs the television department. He's an amazing, amazing agent. And so Jake and CAA represented us in taking that show around, which we sold to David Hill at Fox. It became, uh, up to that time, the most expensive unscripted pilot in Fox history, which is why you've never heard of Fandemonium, <laughs> the Search for America's Ultimate Sports Fan, because here, you know, newsflash to anybody who wants to sell a show. If they say you're going to make a pilot, don't become the most expensive pilot they ever made uh, because they're not going to pick it up. Uh, so uh, David Hill said, uh, I, you know, we love it and we're not making it. That said, I'll be happy to share the pilot episode with you. The pilot episode took place in Detroit. Nobody has better sports fans than Detroit. Yeah, that sounds awesome. That sounds awesome. Still still probably uh, an opportunity to make that show, unless someone's made it already. Has yes, anyone? no, pandemonium, it, it, we're still available, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so before we go into Super Connector, because I, I think it's probably obviously related, um, it seems to me that you've sort of seen, you've been tracking and living this changing dynamic that's existing, right? That's been exist into, you know, ushered into existence. But it seems like in the last couple of years, or maybe it's five years versus a decade, I mean, the idea that people who make computers now have television divisions, going back to your point of the, North Cal, South Cal alignment, um, and that they're bidding or outbidding the major networks for sports rights, and that a 60-year-old, 50-year-old doll had a massive box office hit, a sort of their, their outcomes or manifestations of the forces that you saw saw coming why is it happening now why is what what's happened to make all this happen now yeah great question and, and your insight about how long i've been banging on about it is not wrong at, at one point jeff kling said to me i don't know if you have jeff one of the great writers created the world's most interesting man you probably have an episode with him i haven't gotten through all of no, i haven't yet talked to him but yeah, i know exactly i talked to jeff but jeff once yeah. said to me on your headstone it's going to say almost there <laughs> he's really good he's a good copywriter um, yes, I think it's, it, I feel like maybe in some ways we're a 25 year overnight sensation having seen this coming. Um, I, I, for me, the headline that obviously we had a lot to do with creating that, um, Nike's entertainment division, Wapline Entertainment has a three picture scripted deal with Apple's entertainment division amazing Nike yeah. was the seller and apple was the buyer uh you know that uh that I'm, I'm just getting warmed up i've always felt like i'm just getting warmed up but that moment also felt like the culmination of something that we've been working toward and i've been working toward for a very long time i do want to answer your question the reason i think it's happening now and there are great examples before Barbie, like transformers was barbie before barbie sure. was barbie. right but Absolutely. for whatever reason, neither industry, entertainment or advertising, saw it as a watershed moment. Maybe because Transformers was dead IP, they literally weren't selling any toys around the world. Maybe because Transformers had already been a cartoon in the 80s. So for some reason, just neither industry said, this is a new way forward, this is a great example. And it probably didn't hurt that battleship and G.I. Joe, which were the Hasbro movies that came after Transformers, maybe didn't do so well. But yeah. Transformers, through all the movies, last time I checked it, it had done $5.2 billion in box right. office. So, so yeah. it's happened. But the reason I think the moment you're describing now has less to do, I think, with the fact that Barbie is a pop smash hit, brilliantly landed at the intersection between the ethos of Barbie and the current cultural ethos, if you will. I almost used the word zeitgeist, but I, I, I swore that word in viral off a decade ago. Um, but I, I don't think it's because of these great examples. I think it's because the relationship between the entertainment industry and the advertising industry has broken down to the point 
where everybody's looking for new ways forward. And so when these moments that are just additional moments in a timeline happened, it became, a, everybody says, oh, what about, let's do that. Oh, this is, there is a way forward. The way forward is through these innovative partnerships, through sharing IP, through taking the strength of a brand's ability to resonate and help promote a movie. Because part of the key to Barbie isn't just the brilliant script that Greta and Noah wrote and the brilliant cast and the brilliant soundtrack and everything that it is. It's also that that the team, Robbie Brenner, Richard Dixon, I think Sejal Shaw Miller was there and then before she went to, to Converse, like all the people associated with, with on the Mattel side, they unleashed that thing. And so it really helped a great movie open in a great way. And I think, not to go too far into that specific example, but I really do believe it's that the, the breakdown, and I can go into it further if you want, as we talk about Superconductor Studios maybe, but the, the, the established relationship between advertising and entertainment was really stayed for like 50 years. And then it all kind of fell apart. And these big hits this year are showing us a, a way forward to repeat myself. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, I, th I think you're, the, the, the Barbie, you know, you had these action hero genre movies to have this type of film maybe in that, and that sort of, as you said, this cultural moment and to have a script that was so challenging from a brand perspective, you know, and I think that those are a lot of the, 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 the reasons that it, that it, it seems so interesting. Yeah, I'm um, probably going to get in trouble for for saying this, um, but you know, I, I had a front row seat to watch Transformers happen. We represented Hasbro at CAA. We helped later. I had nothing to do with the first Transformers. I wish I did, but you know, we kind of helped facilitate some of the other stuff. But then we had Mattel as a client after that, and I had um, challenging conversations. By by which I mean I was being challenged um, with two Mattel CEOs in a row, Bob Eckert and Brian Stockton, may he rest in peace, really great guy who left us way too soon. Um, but both of them were really frustrated that um, Transformers was, was happening or in Brian's case had happened um, and that you know we quote unquote or they quote unquote couldn't get the Barbie movie made. And there's a whole thing I won't go into that all movies are a miracle, but, but you know my position on that movie for a long time was they shouldn't make it that until the absolute right script and right moment and right person to play Barbie, because a, a wrong casting decision could ruin a multi-billion dollar franchise. A the Transformers had nothing to lose. Barbie had everything to lose. Yeah. We were yeah. selling lots and lots of Barbie around the world. And so my position on it was you'll know when you read the script and when it's when the IP is sitting with the right partner. Um, and then the movie will get made. And like, that is not what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that it was getting made and it was getting made with the right people. And like the alchemy that Barbie landed on or that Barbie created with the amazing team who created it, like it just didn't exist prior to that. And yeah. Well, it was, well, was it a decade in the making? They'd, they'd, be, they'd been trying to make the movie for 10 years. At least, oh, they wanted to, you know, if you remember Barbie had a huge DVD franchise, like they yeah. had a thriving entertainment IP kind of division at Mattel. So it was an easy leap for them that it should be with the studio and different creators had it. I don't want to name names, but you know, who knows how much of it's public, but different creators had the rights for a while. I, I don't recall how the IP bounced from studio to studio, but I, I suspect it did. And ultimately, you know, the right thing happened in the right moment. But my personal opinion, not necessarily creative artists agency's opinion or their opinion, but my personal opinion was that there was way too much at risk for the Barbie franchise and all the times I was being pressured to help get that movie made. Mm -hmm. So so coming on to, on to Super Connector, one of the things I read is that you call yourselves a consultancy. I don't, you, do you call yourself a brand consultant, a brand entertainment consultancy? Not you're not an ad agency. You're not, I'm an, not agency. an ad agency. Uh, I I with 
all due respect, and I actually mean with great respect, not when people say with all due respect and what they really mean by that is with no respect whatsoever. I have <laughs> tremendous respect for the creative advertising industry, and it was an honor and a privilege, as they say, to be a part of it. But I did say to my co-founder, John Kaplan, if I ever say we should start a creative agency again, punch me in the face. Uh, it's it's a shrinking market, number one, as we were just talking about with, uh, you know, it's, I haven't read it yet, but apparently there's some ad week news out today that some, some great agencies are shrinking and I hate to see that. Uh, but there are absolute best in class existing agencies. There are great new agencies coming up, a Greg Hahn's agency and Special Group, and there's a great agency here in Nashville called Flight View. Like there's plenty of great creative agencies in the world. We want to facilitate those great creative agencies working more in entertainment. So to answer your question, we call ourselves a management consultancy, uh, a brand entertainment production company, and we also have a talent accelerated consumer products division. And I'm, I'm happy to speak to each of those if you think it might be interesting to your listeners. Yeah. So, um, what I remember, because I have, I don't, I have sort of, I don't remember much, and the, the older I get, the less I remember. But I do remember there was a, there were a, quite a few widened people at, at CAA. Yeah, I, I pulled a lot of my favorites into work. Right, you just kind of you, you pulled all the best people out, and uh, so I remember, um, I remember hearing stories about. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how close you got to kind of strategy or, or the planning side, and I don't know how involved in that you are now. But it seemed that whether you call it that or whether you call it like research or finding a backstory or talking to these celebrities to get something that is true to them, um, that's kind of what some of the stuff I was hearing that 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 the team was working with talent to try and identify things that this talent could go to market with you know i thought that was sort of really interesting i thought it was like you know yeah there's 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 it i guess the stupid overused words is it word of the year authenticity um uh yeah look look when i when i talk about our talent accelerated consumer products division we do a lot we do a lot of strategic work and exactly what you're describing but but back to that period at caa um we had one of the world's great strategic planners for a long while, not named Isaiah Langawe, um, who is you know now a founding partner at um, Anomaly in Los Angeles. Yeah, um, and so we had the function, but you're right, the function was not to be Mark Barden, Chris Riley, you know, go off to the John Shaw, go off. Those were like three of my three of my you know favorite planners at, at Wyden. Um, go off to the mountain and come back with a brilliant one sentence positioning for you know, ESPN isn't a network, it's the world's greatest sports fan. Um, you know, like, ah, you can make ads for that. And that's where this sports center came from. Uh, you know, Windows is the way humans interact with machines. Right. I make a Microsoft campaign up off of that. I used to keep a drawer full of uh, my my favorite one line briefs from Wyden Kennedy. So Isaiah's job wasn't that. But yeah, when you sit at Creative Artists Agency, you have a we had a crystal ball into global popular culture. We knew which music acts were going to pop six months or a year from now, um, not because CAA was gonna get behind them, but because that's how long it takes to program a great tour. And so we would know who was selling a lot of tickets in, a, you know, in enough geographies around the world that it's a fait accompli that they're gonna be a huge star. And we know that a minor TV star or minor TV actor you know, who's only on, who had maybe the number two role in a television show that she had just booked four huge movies and was going, it was going to be the, you know, her summer, two summers from now when these movies come out or that a, you know, a screenwriter that you haven't heard of, you know, that she was actually moving into directing and the studio was really behind her and she had an amazing indie that she was working on. And then she also just got picked up for a, for a, you know, an Avengers movie or, a, you know, blockbuster. So, you know, knowing what was going to happen in popular culture gave a strategic planning function, the ability to say, okay, Coca-Cola or General Motors or Diageo or ABN Bev, 
you know, any of our clients, you know, given what you've shared with us about where your brand storytelling is going the next year, where your consumers are going in the next year, the type of media you think you might commit to to reach them in the next year, here's what we think it's going to look like two years out. And so why don't we start partnering with this entertainment and this talent uh, or making something that behaves like entertainment, Chipotle, um, and, and put it out into the world. So ultimately, it wasn't an accident that the, um, the first Chipotle piece, Back to the Start, you know, premiered in its own commercial pod on the Grammys after Coldplay's live yeah. performance. Yeah. And, you Amazing. know, it, it was, that was not a media buy. That was architected over the course of a couple of years um, to ultimately the right place to premiere that piece presented itself to us. Amazing. Amazing. So I want to get your take on this because um, when you when you were describing that, it reminded me of some sort of early days of the internet where you could sort of place bets on culture and they sort of, I think there was a site and I can't remember, there maybe there is one now, but it was sort of like cultural capital. Oh, you, yeah. You kind of remember that you could like buy shares in a director. And I had this case because I, I worked in McCann and I remember hearing a story of we took Coca-Cola, the sponsorship deal for a 20-year deal for the World Snowboarding Championships. I think it was year two or something. And they didn't want to buy it. They said it's a fad. They went back, they went back five years later and paid 10x. So I'm always interested. I also took um we did it when I was a butler, we worked for a video game company, and they asked us, we were actually hired to sort of do sort of a little bit of that forecasting stuff. And we said, there's this band called Gorillaz, and you should do a music game with that. And they said, no, music games don't sell. And that was before sort of like Guitar Hero came out. So it's such a it's such an interesting thing to sort of like the crystal ball thing. If you have, it's one thing having it. It's the other thing convincing people to place those bets. And I thought I would just wanted to get your take on that because that seems yeah, like a you're, pretty you're right. interesting, interesting challenge. I mean. Obviously, you get to the point where it's irrefutable, like the tipping point. Once someone signed their fourth deal with a major studio and 18 months ago, they were a B-part actor. That's the tipping that they, they made the tipping point. But when you get in early, just because you kind of see it ahead, that's where you start to sort of, you know, really, because you can get those deals cheaper, right? So, um I thought that would just be an interesting question. Like, this... I have, well, that stories like that for days, which I'll have yeah. to share. Uh, the yes, and and look again, sitting at Creative Artists Agency, and then you know having spent that decade and a half there, and then having Observatory and now Super Connector Studios, all of which kind of sit at the the center of the global entertainment ecosystem. We did have an ability to show with with data that no one else had. Yeah, um, that that could help prove our point. Yeah. Um, so it was, a, you know, we could say, look, this artist is, you know, they're going from clubs to arenas to in some geography stadiums. So, you know, we're the only people who know this right now. So, you you know, maybe you want to get, you know, on board and do something with them now. Right. Um, right. Otherwise, to your exact point, you're going to be buying a sponsorship from Live Nation or AEG, uh, you know, in six or 18 months from now. And you're going to be getting a lot less. Uh, because you're you won't be you know in partnership with the artist directly. You'll be in partnership with the corporation that is their tour at that point, the business that is their tour. Um, so we we did, and then you know beyond data too. I think just the just proximity, um, the the global entertainment business in terms of the number of people actually making decisions is about the size of a large public high school. I went to a large public high school in Northern California. I think there were 1,200 kids at, at Monta Vista High School in Cupertino. Um, I, um, not all of them were my friends, um, but I knew all of them by name and they knew me by name. And you knew who 
the nerds were, the jocks were, the stoners. The ecosystem. The goths were. Right. Exactly. You knew who crushed it in math and who crushed it in English. You knew like you, all of these things are just known in, in an ecosystem or a community because, you know, Hollywood, even if it's a bit disaggregated um, geographically now, for example, I'm doing this for you with, from Nashville, Tennessee, which has an amazing entertainment infrastructure now. Um, but but the community is very small. And so whether you're working with data because an artist has booked a tour or a writer is has now a director or an actor has just booked a big movie, um, that it's kind of common knowledge to those 1,200 people or so who trade in that information every day in order to do what they do for a living and just isn't common knowledge and there's no place you can Google it if you're just one layer out. If you're a big advertiser, have a really cool creative agency, have the most sophisticated media agency in the world, that information is still second, third, or fourth hand to you and you, you just don't trade in it nor do you have access to it necessarily. And so, you know, one of the things we've always done, and certainly we do at Super Connector Studios now, is you just know who to call and you just know who to present uh, when you're working on a project. And then if you need data, you also know exactly where to get it from and you're pretty clear on which of it is confidential, which is proprietary and which you can share. Mm. In terms of stories, uh, I love them all, but uh, there's a really great executive who worked with us at CAA uh, for years, her name is Lori Tab. Um, Lori worked on a lot of stuff, but in particular, she worked on Hasbro and she was part of that original Transformers. Um, and then she also worked on Mattel. I can't remember which of those two brands she was talking to when we represented at the time, but I can remember her showing YouTube videos of this kid doing Usher covers and saying, our music department says Justin Bieber is going to be huge. And whichever one of those toy companies was, and he was definitely the age of their core consumer at the time, uh, passed, passed outright. Like she came back you know, from that meeting where she probably had five things to talk about. She's like, I, I mean, it was the quickest part of the meeting. You know, and so she loved to tell that story in the hallways. Afterward. And you know, that, that's one of a thousand stories. Yeah. Um, sometimes the opposite happens. Um, Sam Spiegel, who's Spike Jones' little brother, is an amazing music producer and has a music house for commercials. Um, we were shooting a campaign when I was still in advertising at Ligas Delaney for Mavi Jeans, a Turkish jeans company. Remember that. I remember. Yeah. 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 So and then, and then, then they created their own brand. Really nice family. Uh, we were so we were at their agency doing a campaign. Um, and Sam Spiegel, was uh, was spinning on set because one of the a lot of the commercials took place in a house party in Hollywood. So the Malloys were shooting it. It was kind of semi verite. So um, so they said, well, let's just throw the party and we'll move through the party with the cameras and let's so let's have Sam DJ. So Sam DJs and then we're in we're in at it and Sam comes in with this. This was you know early internet. Sam comes in with a CD. He's like, hey, this band cannot get arrested. They cannot get a label deal. They cannot get a talent agency. They can't get anything. I believe in them. Um, I've remixed this song and you guys can have it for free if you'll put it on your Mavi Jeans commercial. So that song was This Love by a band called Maroon 5. <laughs> and you know, Adam Levine, if you're listening, I'm still waiting for my 10%. Um, and like, but, but everybody wanted that because we got a song of a incredibly high caliber with incredible resonance, you know, yeah. and they got the benefit of Mavi Jean's media buy, most of which was on a network then called MTV that still played music videos. Uh, and, um, and everybody wanted so that, so it does work both ways. Not every story is, is Mattel or Hasbro passed on Justin Bieber. Sometimes it's advertising broke Maroon 5, whether Maroon 5 knows it or not. So um, when you look at the world, the brand world, um, alcohol, everyone wants, everyone thinks they can be George Clooney, right? Everyone thinks uh, I go down to Mexico, I get a Tequila farm and someone's going to write me a check for a billion dollars. And it's, it's almost overloaded. Um, I know this because I've just done a project in this in this space, and 
it requires quite a lot of capital and investment to to make this work. Um, what what are you what are your thoughts on that? The celebrity, everyone's got a beverage. Everyone wants to be have a billion dollars like Clooney. So you know that one specifically. Uh, Mike Meldman, Randy Gerber, and George Clooney made a perfect partnership. Mike Meldman because of the because of, of the skills and the, the things we brought to the table with Discovery Properties and everything else. Mike Meldman is a brilliant business person. Yeah, Randy Gerber owned dozens of whiskey bars and other bars. The brand whiskey bar, not you know, not, exactly. not yeah. bars for whiskey. Um, he was an incredible hospitality operator at the absolute highest end and coolest end, uh, and and you know had staying power in that business where a lot of people are are you know one and done. Um, and George Clooney and first of all, and, and then all three of them actually loved tequila. And Clooney, you'll recall, was not the face of that brand until very very recently. And even now, it's him and Randy, right? Um, but where they were really smart was George Clooney would go to the Southern Wine and Spirits, now Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits uh, convention, you yeah. know, in Las Vegas. Distribution, you gotta be, you gotta right. be friends with them. You wanna have a drink with George Clooney. And yep. so he did the behind the scenes work that ultimately, so, so yeah, everybody, you're right. It, everybody thinks it's easy. And there are a lot of very successful celebrity fronted tequila brands and other brands. and. Um, you know, it's very challenging to talk about now because of some really challenging things that have come to light recently. But, you know, yeah. what what Puffy and Ciroc did for the, for over a decade, you know, yeah. was also remarkable, totally different type of, of business model. Um, but so and bold stop, we have a talent accelerated consumer products division. Um, you know, and, and for what it's worth, I on the side, I'm also in the midst of launching a rum right now where I do have a bunch of talent that are my partners, none of whom will be the face of the brand. I'll tell you about that, you know, another time separately. But uh, I, in talking to a Pernod and talking to a Diageo and talking to an LVMH or a William Grant or a Brown Foreman, I don't think any of them are predicting more celebrity uh, <laughs> tequilas as a good idea. Some of them have great partnerships. Some of them overpaid uh, and are maybe regretting it. Uh, but um, you know, everybody's not Ryan Reynolds and, and everybody's not George Clooney. Um, and you know, some will make it and, and some won't. Yeah, I think there's an interesting, an interesting. Uh, you know, Ryan Reynolds. He works his ass off. I mean, he's. I mean, he you know delivers, and he real. I mean. I think that's the difference. What you what we've sort of been saying is there is you've got to understand this industry and and how it works or these industries you're in uh, or want to be part of and and you got to you got to offer something other than just your face. Ryan Reynolds is a great business person with a great team who seems not to sleep. Gwyneth Paltrow is a tech CEO who happens to have previously become Good famous. Night. As, as an actor. Yeah. And you know, she's you can call her a lifestyle guru now, which she also is, but you know, I've had a, a front row seat and also spoken to, you know, to her investors because I happen to know them. She is a full-on kick-ass tech CEO. She cares about the culture of the company. She cares about the business of the company. She shows up for work every day. Jessica Alba, same thing. First one in, last one out, runs the meeting, cares about the product. No product has ever come in or gone out the door at The Honest Company without Jessica Alba having something to do with it, touching it personally, believing in it. Like these are not accidents. Reese Witherspoon, before she started Hello Sunshine, was already known to be the most voracious reader in a town full of voracious readers. And if a publisher sent her a galley overnight, she read it overnight. And so when you're reading books before anybody else reads books and scripts before anybody reads scripts, and then you start a company that options all of those or grabs the rights to those when they have women at the center of the story and women storytellers behind them, Guess what? You end up with Hello Sunshine that's worth $900 million. Like none of these things, Clooney included, are accidents. Nobody yeah. became successful in these consumer businesses or these media businesses because they happen to be famous. 
And I think there, you're right, there is a tremendous misconception, not so much on the talent and entertainment side, I think almost just in the, in the consumer world, that this is somehow easy, that you can be famous and start a brand and that the brand will just become successful. You know, what Kris Jenner has done with Kardashian and Jenner Inc., that's a business. Those are very, very, very hardworking people. Look at Mr. Beast. Look at Mr. Beast, the 25-year-old phenomenon. Was he ever just signed a deal with Amazon? And I mean, and, that guy That guy spent a decade A-B testing his way to, to making great content. You're and exactly then building, right. And building, building his own Hollywood studio. And rolling every penny of what he made on the previous idea. Exactly. Idea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's flip. Uh, let's flip to the other side. Sorry, Dad. sorry to interrupt. I was thinking about flipping to the other side because what's interesting about what's interesting about what you're doing is, and we sort of talked about this earlier, is the sort of investment portfolio. There are many avenues and doorways. The super connector idea makes a lot of sense. It's not just about one set of connections. It's about looking at these sort of multiple dimensions of connections. So another doorway is obviously brands who like CPG brands struggling for attention. You know, um, I can't remember what I, I was at some conference. I think it was at this contagious conference and the Kellogg snack company that spun off was speaking. And they're like, our portfolio exists of six 65 year old plus brands. I mean, you, you the, the pop tart has to has to cannibalize itself if it wants to get attention. So surely these guys must be like, okay, we can't afford to be on television anymore because we don't have that kind of budget. We'll we want we want we need to be out there in the cultural domain. How are we going to do it? Is that is that something you're hearing? Is that that's exactly right. By the yeah. way, I left out in my monologue there, Snoop Dogg, hardest working person in entertainment. It's not an accident. How could we miss that? How could we miss Is wine innovation of the year three years in a row. Like that guy will call BevMo managers and total wine managers, roll two minute calls. And like, if you're managing BevMo and Tuscaloosa, you know, and- so What was that? What, to just go back, let's rewind back to that story. So this was when you were observatory, this was a deal you did, right? Now, the deal was actually done directly between Treasury Wine Estates, who owns the 19 Crimes brand, and Snoop through Snoop's managers, who's named Nick Adler. Now, they did the deal and uh, they came to us for kind of the round two marketing. The initial marketing, uh, I think, was done by an agency called Cashmere. They did a good job. Um, but ultimately, they came to us because of exactly what you described, because we live at the intersection of, of you know, brands, popular culture and entertainment. So we got it. So they kind of like we've got it to this point. How do we take yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. By the way, I could be wrong about who the brand was, so forgive me. I mean, yeah. who the uh, agency was, so forgive me if it wasn't if it wasn't Cashmere. Um, so yeah, so we, so we took it from there. Um, but remarkable opportunity, and once we dig into it, you really understand that Nineteen Crimes was a a good brand in the U.S. for Treasury Wine Estates. Had a great heritage. The Nineteen Crimes are the Nineteen Crimes that you could commit in the Commonwealth that would send you to the penal colony that was Australia. Most people were never going to know that, but it just kind of had this element that most wine brands don't. So it then made sense. And, and there's an executive at Treasury Wine Estates named John Wardley, who saw the opportunity there, who created the partnership with Nick and Snoop. And, you know, it was uh, heretical in the wine business to put the talent's face on the label. That's a terrible idea. Like, you don't do that. Like, you know, that, that Miraval, the Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie rosé, which is great rosé. Like, you know, what percentage of people actually know that it's theirs? It's about the Miraval brand. But in the case of 19 Crimes, it was Snoop's Cali Red and then Snoop's Cali Rosé and then Martha's Shard, which is actually part of the Snoop family and on Snoop's Cali Gold, which is sparkling. Um, wine Innovation of the Year, three years in a row, 1.6 million cases a year of uh, of Cali Red, I think um, forty percent of people who buy Cali Red have um, never bought a nineteen Primes branded wine before, 
and it's a double digit percentage. I'm not sure. By the way, all of this is is uh, yeah. on the internet. You can yeah. you, have, you can Google this. Well, more people in the wine category. Um, but uh, people in the wine category, yeah. But a, a significant number of people uh, who buy it um, uh, are first time wine buyers. Uh, but but Snoop, man, that guy is all in on that business. He's part of you know Linda Knight, our chief creative officer at Observatory. You know, Snoop's got as much feedback on the script and the creative concept as anybody um, in the loop on it. Probably has the loudest voice ultimately. Um, and, you know, the success from there speaks for itself. So if you're, how do you, do, how do you have the conversations with these, with these brands? Is it, is it, do they come I mean, obviously, there's probably lots of different ways and avenues there. But are all the people coming to you to say, we're really interested in your take of what we could do? Without jinxing it, <laughs> uh, we have been very lucky recently, perhaps having to do with where we started this conversation and that, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time, and it seems to be having a moment. You to come back to the dynamic you were describing, uh, it's in many cases, exactly a function of the dynamic you're describing, the large CPG companies, the portfolio beer companies, the portfolio sparkling beverage companies, the portfolio, you name it companies, yep. Yep. Um, they, some of them have hundreds of brands. And like most businesses, they can only support the 80-20 rule. And in, in a lot of the cases, it's the 10-90 rule. They can really only support their winners. And then when your winners are winners, you go after your winners even more. And so you're going for having made a gamble on Old Spice a while back, P&G now is going for more shelf space for Old Spice instead of going for the next Old Spice. Right. And so we quite frequently do get that phone call, which is top of our portfolio is humming, but we have these amazing brands that have incredibly, um, uh, they, they still have cultural resonance. They have a very loyal user base and customer base. We think there's opportunity for them, but we know we can't spend in a traditional way or build a DDC, DDC business around it. So we have at Super Connector Studios then a proprietary process that we go through then. We look at the brand values, we look at the current customer set, and we look at the desired customer set. We literally create concentric circles. And then we look at the universe of talent and we look at talent values, and then next concentric circle out who the talent's core audience is, meaning typically who follows them on social, and then who the talent's entertainment audience is who goes to their sports games, listens to their music, watches their films and television shows. And then we take those two sets of concentric circles. This is the proprietary part. I'm giving it away to the whole industry now. And then we make a Venn diagram out of them. Now, in, in a lot of cases, we do have access and connectivity and we are part of that community. So when we build that second set of concentric circles, sure. we actually do have an ability to do it in a way that no other company does. I truly believe that. But then we do that. And then again, because we're part of the entertainment ecosystem, we can quickly gauge conflict. You know, could they even work in this category? Availability, are they on a movie for the next three years? And interest, because we know whether in the case of this particular talent where the Venn diagram overlaps a lot um, and they, are they don't have a conflict and they do happen to be available, we know whether to then call their lawyer or call their agent or call their manager or call their producing partner or call their sister. In, in, in the case of each talent, there's usually a different person who's the right person to call for this type of opportunity. And we're looking for two things at that point, a quick no or a maybe. You never get yes in that phone call. You know, the, the second best answer, you know, after yes, uh, is a quick no. So we go for that. And so we can move pretty quickly. And then we do have a, a range of business models then that can attach talent to that brand within the portfolio. None of which are pay the, pay the talent a whole bunch of money up front, commercial endorsement style, and then run ads with them. Um, so whether it's a royalty sharing in the upside, somehow getting, you know, some shares. So we have a, you know, I think the last time I looked at our, um, our threads, I think we have eight different models through which 
talent can partner with existing brands and share in the upside with the brand. Oh, that's interesting. So when you look at when you look at um the streamers and you look at I mean everyone's looking at I I personally think Formula One is one of the biggest, it has to be one of the best brand transformations in the last decade. And, and I also think Red Bull gets doesn't get the credit for really being part of that and ultimately being able to sort of self-liquidate and fund through sponsors. Now it's such a successful team, it brings Oracle on board that, that underwrites the cost of the cost of the team. I mean, that is absolute genius. Uh, that's not winning a can lion or anything, but it's still pretty remarkable. So now you've got all these sports franchises that they look at, they look at, they look at what Netflix did for Formula One, and they're like, "Oh, we need." <laughs> they they try and follow. They're trying to follow. Everyone's lining up. There's a golf one. There's a tennis one. There's a there's going to be a track and field one. Um, Most of them are pretty good too. I watch them. Yeah, all. yeah. What, what's your what's your thought on 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 that? The non the, the going in into the in, in the, the documentary angle. What's not to love? Uh, yeah. Yeah, the uh, you're seeing the story behind the story. It's being told in most cases by really good storytellers, uh, and it makes you that much more likely to show up for the game. So, um, in in my family, uh, my son and I are are the NFL fans. Uh, my wife, not so much. Uh, but at the three of us, uh, my daughter's off of college, the three of us um, love quarterback, love it. And uh, if the Chiefs are playing or the Vikings are playing, um, you know, then, you know, my, my wife, I think like everybody, maybe myself included, fell in love with Kirk Cousins watching quarterback. And like, you know, she's that much more likely to watch it. And we're all that much more engaged when Mahomes is on the field or Kirk Cousins is on the field. Yeah. With all, by the way, again, with real respect for Marcus Mariota, um, somehow the way his story played out, unfortunately, did not give us the opportunity to cheer for him as much as we would have liked to. But in all, we're the same as you know, Breakpoint, uh, or you know, I mean, I think in in all of them, they're showing us an aspect of the sport that otherwise we weren't getting. So it's it's wonderful, and I agree that you know, a Drive to Survive started the trend, uh, and B back to your Red Bull point. Um, Red Bull is the transformers of brands operating in media. Um, while they were everybody's example, they're kind of dismissed the way Nike is dismissed. Like Nike starts an entertainment division. Oh, of course they did. That's Nike. No, they did it because they're Nike. And right. this Red Bull, oh, that's Red Bull. Gabor Harak, who was a part of all that great early Red Bull media house stuff. He's a great producer, does a lot of work for Corona now. Um, Gabor once explained it to me that the um, the owner of Red Bull very simply would say it's not marketing, it's the company. Yeah. So the company is getting into racing, and even though racing might be break even or a money loser in any given year, and our drinks business is incredibly profitable, we're still not thinking of one as a marketing engine for the other. The company makes an energy drink. The company is getting into air racing. The company is getting into these wacky events called Flugtog or whatever it was called. The company is getting behind action sports where nobody else will get behind action sports. And then we're gonna actually film it and distribute what we film. Like all of those things were companies. And because of the mindset of thinking of it as a company, they put a PL against it. Again, even if it was more L than P, they put a they put a PL against it. They hired people who ran those divisions like PLs, not like a negative line item in marketing. And as a result, there you go. Red Bull Racing, Ferrari winning races left and right, sponsored by Oracle. The team is a brand, and another brand is paying for it in the same way, back to where we started, that Nike is selling movies to Apple and making money. Is Sh was Shoe Dog part of that deal, or was that separate? Uh, Shoe Dog um, was not part of that deal. Shoe Dog is Phil's. This, again, this is all public. Um, so so Sh Shoe Dog is Phil's. Um, last time I checked, uh, uh, one of the distributors... Um, had the rights and a very, very well-known producer is working on it. Um, 
That's probably all I can say publicly. But that is not, that is separate from Waffle Entertainment. That's Phil's project. So um, fast forward. I know we're going to want to wrap up because I'm, I'm keeping you longer than I. Than oh my I God, I can do this for, I can do the, the eight hour version of this. So please um, cut me so off. Crystal ball gazing without naming the next Justin Bieber. Um, where, where do you think this is all, all heading? You know, if if you follow if you follow your sort of trend line, the, this this a sort of you. My summary is: cultural creativity is absolutely fundamental to the success of brands. They need to be in the cultural domain, and advertising used to be the vehicle to do that, and now they need other vehicles. So it just seems that whatever we call entertainment, whatever entertainment is or becomes, because that's the that's an evolving technology, whether we're putting these extraordinary glosses on or whether we have holograms in our living room, it's going to be entertainment. And someone's going to be making it and somebody's going to be behind it. And some of it's going to be more compelling. But what's happened is that vehicle that was, you know, you're going to sit and watch a 60-second ad as you said, your your premonition or your experience based on skipping through your own commercial when TiVo came out, it just seems that more that's just we're just on the accelerated trend away from that. So, you can accuse me of confirmation bias. Uh, I think you are absolutely right. I love the way you phrased it: cultural creativity. Uh, because the best brands will create, the brands that resonate will create culture, not simply interrupt it as advertising does, not simply co-opt it as advertising does and sponsorship does and promotion does and ride along and be adjacent and try to grab a little bit of the cool train because this artist is breaking or that movie is breaking or that television shows a hit and your beer happens to be on the table on that hit show, that's not going to do it. The brands who will succeed will be part of creating it. So, um, and in terms of the crystal ball, again, confirmation bias, but I also have the benefit of, of looking at my own PL and pipeline associated with it. So forgive me for being self-serving, but I have a kind of a case study of one, our management consultancy is working with every aspect of the ecosystem. We're working with distributors to figure out what premium brand content looks like, not ads, what premium brand content looks like on their platform. We're working with studios who create but don't distribute the entertainment. They finance it. They then sell it to the distributors. They too are trying to figure out how to work more directly with brands because typically they sell, say you're selling a television show, you sell that to the distributor, the distributor either sells a subscription or sells ads or sells both in order to make up what they paid the studio. The studios are asking us to help them figure out how to work with brands directly to make premium brand content. The talent is asking us to work with them and that's just our management consulting division. Our brand entertainment division the world's leading brands are coming to us and saying, we know we need to create the content. So we're doing it. You know, we did it for, for Nike. We're doing it for ABN Bev now and half a dozen others that I'm probably not allowed to talk about, but you're going to see sure. spring releases come out. And you know, both for one-offs and creating studios. And then in our talent accelerated consumer brands, which I talked about already, the world's leading brand portfolios are coming to us and saying like brands X, Y, and Z we know they have breakout potential. We know they could have more shelf space at Walmart and Target. Um, if only they had cultural resonance, can we partner with talent to help create that? So I think, again, third time I'll say it, confirmation bias for sure, but the numbers to back it up, that's where it's going. The world's leading marketers will create content and experiences that attract and engage an audience while also driving brand and business results. If you think you can just interrupt your way into cultural resonance and shelf base and consumers wanting to buy you, just look at the number of brands you said at Mr. Beast that are being broken by talent who became talent on platforms that didn't exist when some of these brands, 65 years old or 6.5 years old around. There are brands that will be made through TikTok talent that will be billion dollar brands. And you know the marketers and the and the uh, 
and the creators who sign up for this blended future where something that you and I as consumers love regardless of who brought it to us, we don't care if Starbucks made a great television show. We care if it's a great television show and if Starbucks is behind it and it takes place in a Starbucks, cool. We're probably a lot more likely to go to Starbucks. Could have been friends. Yeah. Um, yes. Final, that is final question. Final question. A 27-year-old writer in an agency like you used to be, but in 2024, what's your advice to them? Stop writing ads. Like, like really take the time to understand. If you got a brief today, young woman, young man, young day, if you got a brief today that said the output has to be a six second, 15 second, 30 second or 60 second commercial, quit. And if you can't quit, go back to the executive who gave you that brief and the brand who gave you that brief and cross out every aspect of it that says what type of media your idea needs to become and bring them back a platform idea that can apply to any form of media and can create that media. That's the, the job of creatives and strategists and account people, and at, regardless of where you sit, the job is no longer to fill media orders. That's gonna be done by bots anyway, it really already is. Your job is to create culturally resonant platforms that will move your client's product. Very cool. By the way, I teach a class at UCLA, so I might have had that one on 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 go. Um, great, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for the time, and I.